Amen. Well, if you would join me in Luke chapter 1, we'll go through a, before we return to Hebrews, through a Christmas series called The God Who Is There, working our way through the Gospel of Luke. And I think Luke helps us to understand the foundation of what Christmas is about, what this time of year is about, and kind of the aim of our celebration. So I'll start reading Luke chapter 1, verse 5. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were righteous in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commands and decrees blamelessly. But they were childless because Elizabeth was not able to conceive, and they were both very old. Once when Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot according to the custom of the priesthood to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well along in years. The angel said to him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words, which will come true at their appointed time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today, for your many blessings, for the opportunity we have to study your word. God, transform our minds, transform our mindset, the way that we see the world, most importantly, the way that we see you. Help us to humble ourselves before you today and to learn from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. God sees you. 
I feel like this is something that we need to hear today, is that God sees you. God has his gaze fixed on you. Those of you in this room who are struggling, who are depressed, who are overcome with grief or anxiety, God sees you. What I mean by that is God cares for you. That he remembers you, that you are not abandoned, you are not neglected, you are not overlooked. That God sees each and every one of you right where you are, the circumstances that you're going through, what you're facing, and he cares for you. He is concerned on your behalf because that's the God we serve. He is the God who is there. In the story of John the Baptist, the point seems to be that God cares for all humanity. That's why John the Baptist came to bring many sons and daughters to the Lord to prepare the way of the Lord on this global scale. He is to fulfill this ministry. But this cosmic story is told against the backdrop of a very personal story. A story of a family who had gone through years of barrenness and loss and the story is told against the backdrop of their family story, just as the story of the birth of Jesus is. So you have this cosmic, global salvation issue where God is sending John the Baptist and God is sending his one and only son, but both of these birth stories are told in the context and the circumstances of these families. And we're supposed to think, as we read this, that God has a heart for these families and God has a heart for all of us. God has a heart for each and every one of us. God sees us. God has his gaze fixed on us because God, the Lord, is gracious and compassionate. That's who God is. These stories are told to help us understand something of who God is. We want to help people understand who you are or who uh, our ancestors are. What do we do? We tell stories to say this is who they are. This is what they were about. This is who I am. This is what I'm about. These stories are told to help us understand who God is, that the Lord is good. He is compassionate. He is gracious. He is someone worth running home to. Now, it's holiday season, and a lot of us, we we travel, we go to different homes, and and for some of you, that's a bit of a challenge because the people that you find yourself gathered around the table with a little bit ornery, if you're honest, okay? Uh, like, uh, you know, maybe there's a hard time getting along, and may- maybe it's a challenge for you to go to those family gatherings and sit through It's kind of like, okay, let's put the car in drive. Let's go. Let's make it through this. And uh, some of you, that, that's the situation. There are others of you who you can't wait for this season because you love to go home to people that you so dearly love because of what they mean to you, who they are, The Lord is so good, he is someone you want to run home to. James 1.17 says, Every good and perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of the heavenly lights, who does not change like shifting shadows. He is the God who is there. He is the God who is with us in our good times and our bad times in times we're rejoicing. And this story is, say, is to say, here's who God is, and here's what God is up to. And in light of who God is, in light of what God is doing, how then shall we live? 
That's our question we want to wrestle with today. How, how should we respond to what God has done? How should we respond to who God is? How then shall we live? What should our mindset be? Kind of our fixed mindset, our, our confident foundational mindset as we go through life. What should that look like? They want to give you four practical responses to the goodness of God. Answer that question, how then should we live? Number one, be faithful in the midst of adversity. Be faithful in the midst of adversity. The beautiful outcome of the story, of course, is the birth of John the Baptist, who brought untold joy to his family, plays a critical role in the history of salvation. But before his birth was announced... Before Zechariah and Elizabeth knew any of this, this is what it says about them in verse 6, that they were righteous in the sight of God. They were righteous, in the, but before they knew any of this, before they knew that they were going to have this son, John the Baptist, we're talking about decades that they were old in age, they were advanced in years, that's the language that they use of themselves, and we're not going to speculate how old that is, right? But they're advanced in years. So they've spent a lifetime living righteously. Zechariah was a priest. He belonged to a priestly division where uh, it was his time to go into the temple and to make uh, this uh, burnt offering um, or, the, or burn the incense. Um, both are said to be part of a priestly class. But what does it mean that they're righteous? What does that mean? Because we hear that word righteous and we're tempted to go and, and borrow language from Paul and some other places in the Bible and say, well, what that means is not that they were necessarily righteous in and of themselves, but that the righteousness of God was imputed to them or given to them by grace alone, through faith alone. Because we know from Romans 3.10 that none is righteous, no, not one, who, of course, is quoting the Old Testament. And so they couldn't actually be righteous. But the problem with all that is that definition of righteousness is precisely what this text does not say. It defines what it means by righteousness. It says in verse 6, both of them were righteous in the sight of God. What does that look like? Observing all the Lord's commands... And decrees blamelessly. Hmm. The same word is used of Joseph. It's a Greek translation of the Hebrew word tzaddik, which means righteous one. Zechariah and Elizabeth, like Joseph, studied the Torah, the law. They learned from it. They observed it. They practiced it. It was their reputation, and it's who they were. It was their identity. They observed the law to the best of their ability. They put forth their best effort to live their lives in accordance with the word of God, and they surrounded their life in faithful service to the Lord. It's who they were, and it was their reputation. God calls each and every one of us to be righteous. This isn't just a story of Zechariah and Elizabeth and their righteousness. God calls each and every one of us to be righteous. Turn over with me, if you would, to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5. In Matthew 5, we come to the Sermon on the Mount, and a lot of it has to do with righteousness, but in chapter 5, verse 17, there's a bit of a summary of what Jesus thinks of righteousness. 
He says in Matthew 5, 17, Do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. The point in all of this is simply to say that the way you live matters. How you live matters. You can't just walk down the aisle, say a simple prayer, and then move on about your life as if there's no devotion to the Lord, no commitment to the Lord, that there's uh, nothing on your end that you should be faithful in. No real genuine faith produces faithfulness. Let me say it this way. Faith without works is dead. And by the way, I didn't say that. James said that. We are not to be hearers of the word only. We are to be doers of the word, as James would continue to say. Any kind of genuine saving faith will move you to faithfulness. It will uh, be fleshed out in devotion, in commitment to the Lord, in the way that you live your life, your consistent behaviors. All of that matters to God. All of it matters to God. The lesson we learned from Zechariah and Elizabeth is to be faithful even in the midst of adversity. Barrenness in those days, as the end of the story makes clear, was a source of disgrace and shame. It would have been a lifelong struggle, especially in that ancient culture, and a constant point of adversity for them both, particularly for Elizabeth. She found herself at the bottom of the social structure and at the bottom of the social structure in that society, she also found herself barren. They had an excuse, so to speak, to not live in faithfulness to the Lord, to not pursue righteousness. They had good reasons or excuses to live however they wanted to rather than according to the will of God. Where is this righteousness getting us? What's the point of living this way? God's not delivering. He's not giving us what we so desperately pray for, what we so desperately want. We're at the bottom. God seemed to have abandoned us in some sense. They had that reason, and they continued to live in righteousness. Adam and Eve tried to define good and evil for themselves. Here's what's good. Here's what's evil according to me. What I think is right, what I think is wrong, our culture seems intent on paying God lip service, but then reframing the conversation of what real righteousness looks like. And as it just so happens, it typically is whatever I want. Whatever feels good to me, whatever seems right to me, rather than being anchored in the word of God, I will come up with my own idea of what's good and what's evil, and redefine it according to what I want. But Jesus, the righteous one, is our example. He's our example. 
You're not going to be gooder than Jesus. That's bad grammar, but good theology, okay? He is our righteous one. He is our example. He is our model. The word of God is our standard for righteous living and living the abundant life. All of that is anchored in the will of God and his design for your life and how you ought to live. So we should be faithful in the midst of adversity. Number two response, be confident God is working his plan. Be confident God is working his plan. Zechariah had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. He had a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to go into the temple and to burn incense. He would not get this chance in all likelihood ever again. By all appearances, this was... uh, a normal day at the office, so to speak. He was there. He's going to go through the motions. People outside are going to pray. There was no reason to think anything significant was going to happen, but little did they know that God had a word for them. Look down at verse 8. It says, Once Zechariah's division was on duty and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense, a major honor for him. Skip down to verse 11. Then the angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son, and you are to call him John. And listen to this. Here's the point. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even before he is born. By the way, you can't be filled with the Holy Spirit before you're born unless and if you're a human being before you're born. Think about it. He will bring back many of the people of Israel to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the parents to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. So as mentioned earlier, the revelation is going to bring great joy uh, but had global significance. Great joy personally, but had global significance. They're going to have this son who's going to bring them joy, but uh, this son that they're going to have is going to have a powerful ministry that's going to bring many sons and daughters to the Lord. But as is often the case, there is more to this story than meets the eye because Gabriel is not just saying random words and just spewing out random facts. In fact, he is alluding to something that Zechariah would know all too well, an Old Testament prophecy. See if this sounds familiar. Hundreds of years before Gabriel spoke these words in Malachi 4, 5, and 6, it says, See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes And he will turn the hearts of parents to their children, the hearts of children to their parents, or else I will come and strike the land with total destruction. Again, in Malachi chapter 3, verse 1, it says, I will send my messenger to prepare the way before me. Then suddenly the Lord you are seeking will come to his temple. The messenger of the covenant whom you desire will come, says the Lord 
Almighty. So John the Baptist is the one who will fulfill this role. He will bring people to the Lord. He will mend families and society. He will prepare the way of the Lord. Long before even Zechariah and Elizabeth were born, God was working his plan. Each of them paid a meaningful role in God's plan. Their whole lives gravitating towards this moment, gravitating towards this event in Zechariah and Elizabeth's life. They did not know the end of the story. It's hard for them to have imagined after spending their entire lives with things a certain way, for them to imagine for a moment that things could change, that things could be different in their old age. They were blind to how God was using them in their righteousness and their faithfulness and how God would ultimately use them in the end. Today, you may be blind to how God is using you. Some of you, you are putting forth effort. You're putting forth a great deal of effort to serve the Lord. And there may be days where you think, what is the point? You can't really see how God's using anything you're doing. It seems to be all for naught. But God sees you. What you're doing in faithful service to the Lord matters to God. We may be blind to how everything's going to unfold, how everything's going to work out, but the Bible teaches us that God is good. He's the only wise God. He is working his plan to fruition. So be confident in the plan of the Lord. Number three, response, be sure God is true to his word. Be sure God is true to his word. Now, as you're reading this, I don't want you to miss verse 18. Because uh, it's uh, a verse that's very easy to read over. It's a very humorous verse, okay? Um, Zechariah asked the angel, how can I be sure of this? I'm an old man and my wife is well along in years. Now, I just wish I could see the expression on Gabriel's face. Moments Moments earlier, Zechariah is shaking in his boots. He's shaking his boots that there is an angel in the temple who has a message for him. And so he has this fiery angel standing before him saying, I've got a word from God for you. And so he delivers the message and Zechariah says, well, how can I be sure that this is true? Because I am old and very delicately he said, and my wife is well advanced in years. And Gabriel said, we hadn't thought about that. (laughs) We did not think this through. We've got to go back. We've got to vet these people more closely. No, I would imagine if an angel shows up to you and has a word from the Lord uh, that would make you shake in your boots, maybe that is the sign that you need, right? Like maybe that could just possibly be the sign that you're looking for. But not for Zechariah. And we we laugh at Zechariah. That's just crazy. The Bible says he was a righteous man. This is not, you know, this is a righteous man. This is not somebody who, who didn't put forth his effort to serve the Lord and have a commitment to the Lord. This is a righteous, godly man. And for him, it was too good to be true. It's too good to be. Surely this could not be what's going to happen. Don't be distracted by the improbable because God's plan is definite and sure. A little bit later, Peter, at his sermon at Pentecost, he said, fellow Israelites, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth was a man accredited by God to you 
by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs, which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. In other words, Jesus went around healing people, giving sight to the blind, the deaf could hear, they see all of the, the lame could walk. He, he literally raises people from the dead. He performs all these signs. What happened? Verse 23, Acts 2, 23, this man was handed over to you by God's deliberate plan and foreknowledge. In other words, we are not on plan B. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was not possible for death to keep its hold on him. In the fullness of time, God sent forth his son into the world. At the perfect time, God sent his son into the world. God is always true to his word. Hundreds of years, people had waited. They waited and they waited, they waited. They, they wanted God to show up. God rend the heavens and come down. Some of the prophets of old prayed to the Lord. They were longing for God to be true to his word. God is true to his word. He works all things according to the counsel of his will. The story of Christ's death and resurrection ought to give us a confident hope. We are sure of things that are a lot less certain than God. Every single one of you, when you walked in this room, there wasn't one of you who began to look at the integrity of the pew that you sat down on. You just sat down with the full confidence that that pew is going to hold you up and everybody else on your pew. But we, we have confidence in that. Some, some of you, this morning, you hopped in your car, you didn't check the tires, you didn't check the gate, you didn't look at anything. I know that there's about three or four of you that you say, oh, I do that every time. That's fine. We love you too. <laughs> but for the vast majority of us, what did you do? You got in your car, you turned on, and you put it in drive. And you went, and you just trusted it's going to get me where I got to go. We believe in things, we have assurance in things all the time that are a lot less certain than God. God is always true to his word. He will work all things according to the counsel of his will. Finally, number four, be comforted by God's favor. Now, I've got to tell you, my favorite line in this entire passage is verse 25. I want to give a little context to it. Look at verse 23. Chapter 1, verse 23. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. <laughs> he returned home and he said to his wife, boy, have I got a story for you. After this, his wife, Elizabeth, became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days... He has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Let me ask you this. How does Elizabeth, however we want to interpret all this, okay? We've got, you read this, and let's just imagine that you read verses 5 down through verse 22, and you come up with your own interpretation. Here's what I think is actually going on. When it comes to the end of it, and Elizabeth begins to reflect on everything that had happened up to that point and all that God had done. What is her interpretation? Verse 25, the Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days, he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. Elizabeth speaks for herself personally, and yet she speaks 
for all of us. The Lord has done this for me. More than a statement, it's an exclamation. One Bible translation says, how good is the Lord for me? Of course, the whole story is told against the backdrop of barrenness in the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Genesis 21, 6, Sarah said, God has brought me laughter. And everyone who hears about this will laugh with me. In Genesis 30, speaking of Rachel, it says, Then God remembered Rachel. He listened to her and enabled her to conceive. She became pregnant and gave birth to a son and said, God has taken away my disgrace. She named him Joseph and said, May the Lord add to me another son. You know that this has been weighing on them for years because when Zechariah went into the temple, what did the angel Gabriel say to him? The Lord has heard your prayer. What prayer? In a matter of his days, I'm sure he prayed many prayers, but, but there was one prayer. He had surely prayed many days before that. And perhaps as he was in the temple burning the incense, making prayers on behalf of the temple, it was just habit for him to say, God, give me a child. God, give us a child. That was his prayer. And Elizabeth says, in these days, God has shown his favor. But I wonder how many days before that, how many days before that, God's favor seemed elusive to Elizabeth and Zechariah. How many days before that had it not been shown to them in the way that they were hoping for? How many days did she not feel God's favor explicitly how many days did she continue to trust in God that she woke up in the morning in the quietness of the morning and she went through her day in quietness faithfully serving the Lord doing what God required of her Zechariah doing what God had called him to do day after day after day and then going to bed barren and then waking up the next morning in the face of adversity and doing the same thing over and over and over and over again in these days she said God has shown his favor. You know what the devil wants you to question? He wants you to question the goodness of God. He will throw anything in your pathway to make you, sometimes bad things in your pathway, sometimes good things for you to think that these other things are better than Christ. He wants the God of this age, according to the Bible, wants to blind you to the light of the glory of God. Of Christ, For you to look at Christ and think of something beyond him as being greater. That he's not nearly as great as you would hope for him to be. That's what the devil wants to put in your mind. Because whatever you think is the greatest, that's what your life is gravitating towards always. The devil tempts us, but when he does, we say these words, My in these days is coming. Look at that word favor. We'll close with this. Look at that word favor. Translated differently in different Bible translations, the King James Version says, looked on me, that God has looked on me. And that's because the word favor literally means, catch this, literally means to fix one's glance upon, to look at, to concern oneself with. She is saying, God sees me. She is saying, God has fixed his gaze on me.
and he has revealed that in these days. Has, had God's gaze been fixed on her a lot longer than that? Sure. God had a plan all along on days when Elizabeth didn't feel it, on days when Zechariah didn't feel it. But in these days, God has shown his favor. God has looked upon me. God has fixed his gaze upon me. God sees me. Someone in that society who nobody would see. The very definition of their existence on many days was that they were unseen, unrecognized, neglected. She rises up and says, God sees me. You know why? Because he is the God who is there. He is the God who is there always. That's what you need to hear today. Why did I read that passage at the very beginning? His love endures forever. It repeats the same line over and over and over and over again. It's almost like we need to hear that. God knows his love endures forever. He didn't need to be reminded of it. Who needs to be reminded of the fact that God's love endures forever? You do. I do. Because we have a lot in this world pushing against that truth, trying to blind us to that truth that God's love endures forever. And we need to be reminded that God sees you and his love for you endures forever. God sees you and he loves you. Whatever you're going through, whatever your circumstances are, God sees you. There's some people in here struggling with addiction. God sees you. Just like he saw the prodigal son, God sees you and God loves you. Some people in here overwhelmed by grief and anxiety and you're struggling today. God sees you. You may feel like nobody else sees you. You may feel like nobody else understands you. God sees you and God loves you. Some people in here overwhelmed with debt and financial circumstances. There's people in here who you've got significant family issues and you're just like, some, there's some people in here you're just working yourself to death and are like, does anybody notice? Does anybody see? God sees you. God cares for you. God loves you. I want you to know that. His love endures forever. Let's bow our heads and close our eyes. I think the point of this humble beginning to this gospel is to start at the absolute bottom of the ancient society and say to them, God sees you. God has shown his favor to show the extent of God's care for you. So in the quietness this morning, you may be struggling with a number of different things. You may be having a great day, praise God, if you are. But some you're struggling. I want you to know that we worship the God who is there. Being in the presence of people that we love gives us strength. We serve the God who is there. Emmanuel. What did God want to say to us? He, he literally named his son Emmanuel. God with us. God is more for you than you are for yourself. That's who God is. Father, we are thankful today that nothing can separate us from your love. We're thankful today that those who in this room feel alone 
that they can hear this message, that they matter to you. Their lives mean something. That you're with us. God, help us to rest in that. Help us to walk in confidence with that. Being sure that you're true to your word, being confident in your plan, being comforted by your favor, being comforted by your eternal gaze, your presence. Father, I pray that you would strengthen us right now as we sing. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's stand. If you need to make a decision today to trust in Christ or be baptized or join the church, pray you'll do that. But maybe for others, you just need to come kneel at the altar and just say, God, thank you for seeing me. When I don't feel it, when I don't see it, when it doesn't seem like anybody else sees it, God, thank you for seeing me and caring. Let's sing. Let's sing.